is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Aidan Hollis today. Aidan is a professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary in my own home province of Alberta. He has a master's and a PhD in economics from the University of Toronto. In addition to his academic roles, he has spent 13 years with the nonprofit organization Incentives for Global Health, where he has served as president for the last five years, helping advance their goals of providing a complementary system for developing pharmaceutical innovations, especially for patients who cannot afford expensive medicines. His CV includes two books, 77 peer-reviewed publications, 40 reports, commentaries, and reviews, and of course, his 2015 paper, Antibiotic Resistance is a Tragedy of the Commons that Necessitates Global Cooperation. So welcome. Is there anything else you want to add to that intro, or did I miss anything? No, just that I had no idea I'd written so much. Can you just provide a brief overview of what your paper was about? There are really two core problems in in antibiotic resistance that this paper focuses on. One is that there's a problem in innovation. There's not enough innovation in terms of trying to develop new antibiotics because it's simply not profitable for a variety of reasons. There's a, a common resource problem in antibiotic innovation um, and nobody wants to invest in it. And a second related problem is that the more antibiotics get used, the more they tend to increase resistance. And that itself leads to lower effectiveness of antibiotics. So over time, the resource is becoming degraded, just at the same time as companies are refusing to invest more money in new antibiotic development. In addition to those two problems, there's a third problem that the worst problems with antibiotic resistance occur in the poorest countries. And there's often inadequate access to important new antibiotics. So adding all these things together, we have a common resource problem with inadequate solutions and for some people just inadequate access to the resource at all. Absolutely. And just to, to emphasize, the resource we're talking about here, which is effective antibiotics, is incredibly important at a global scale. And I just want to make sure I emphasize that for listeners. What do you think are some of the consequences of failing to sustain this important resource? This is really important for everyone. Everyone knows that antibiotics are a common solution to just the ordinary uh, childhood illnesses, whether uh, it's an ear infection or a throat infection, you know that they get misused often because of the flu or other viruses which don't require antibiotics. But they're also almost essential for any surgery. Antibiotics are almost always given prophylactically, i.e. to prevent infection after you've had a surgery. Or for example, if you've had a cancer therapy. So almost all major surgeries become much, minor surgeries become much, much riskier if antibiotics are not available. Cancer, modern cancer therapy is much less likely to be successful in the absence of antibiotics. 
So antibiotics have really extended people's lives and given people more security about expecting to live long. And those, those are both important. So the, the fact that you can expect to live to uh, a, a greater age changes the way you live your life. And also then the fact that you do live longer is not a bad thing. Right. So that's a great point that I, I myself overlooked. And that's a, a person with a degree in microbiology and two public health graduate degrees is you kind of forget and take for granted how important effective antibiotics are in so many aspects of care beyond getting an infection. Right. It, it used to be the case that uh, people would get a, a scratch, uh, for example, and then an infection. And then next thing they know, their, le their, le their leg is gangrenous or you know, they're dying of the infection. It, it, it used to happen all the time, just as an ordinary course of life that, you know, a person who was in otherwise fine health would end up uh, dying because there was simply no good way of treating bacterial infections. And I guess we're at a real risk of, we're at a risk of those becoming wrists again, I should say. Yeah, I mean, we see this in, in uh, some countries where there's inadequate access to antibiotics. But the, the problem is over time, the stock of ordinary antibiotics is becoming depleted and less effective, especially in, for some classes of antibiotics, where they simply don't work anymore as treatments for many important diseases. I mean, the, tuberculosis, which maybe is not so you know, risky, uh, not, not such a big concern for uh, most of the listeners of this podcast, is nevertheless consistently a major killer throughout the world. It's um, treated with antibiotics and the treatment is difficult. Typically for ordinary tuberculosis, patients have to take antibiotics every day, several antibiotics, and it's a bit wearing and, and it goes on for six months, the standard treatment. So if anybody who's taken antibiotics knows that they don't really make you feel that good. And so what happens uh, historically is that people with tuberculosis would just stop taking their drugs. This led the uh, WHO to uh, introduce uh, directly observed uh, therapy programs where patients would have to come in and actually take the pill right in front of the you know, clinical worker so that they could make sure the patients were actually taking their, their pills every day. The fact that people didn't has led increasingly to resistant tuberculosis, you know, then to extremely resistant or multi-resistant uh, forms of tuberculosis, extremely resistant, which is resistant to almost everything. A few years ago, uh, a colleague in India produced a, a paper talking about totally drug-resistant forms of tuberculosis or simply no treatments available aside from basically surgery on the lung to remove lungs. Um, so yeah, over time, if you keep on using antibiotics and especially if you keep on misusing them, you can end up with um, terrible resistance and then um, really bad health outcomes. Wow, and in case anyone is thinking that TB is not a problem that they'll ever encounter. Uh, in my undergrad at the University of Manitoba, 
there was actually an exposure in a bunch of my classes. And I think there was a mass screening campaign of hundreds of students to identify those of us who uh, were exposed and who needed to get prophylactic treatment. So that was in Winnipeg in you know 2004. So um, it's not like these things are so outside of the realm of possibility that we don't need to worry about them here in Canada either. Yeah, it's, uh, it's true. Certainly in, um, in the north in Canada, there's quite a lot of tuberculosis. Um, because of the difficulty of, of treatment in um, some of the small communities that are quite remote from um, medical care. And you touched on um, the idea of reducing our use of antibiotics, and you wrote about this quite a bit in your paper, about one of the potential ways to mitigate the degradation of this resource is conservation mechanisms. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to conserve antibiotic use and why that's possibly not the only approach we need to be using? So conservation is definitely important. That's usually called in, in this area stewardship. So stewardship of, of anti, the antibiotic resource really implies that patients and doctors should not be using it inappropriately. They should only use it when it's required, when it's medically indicated. And that's quite difficult because often patients want antibiotics. They just want some pill that's going to make them feel better. And so Doctors find that often that the easiest thing to do is just to prescribe a broad spectrum antibiotic to patients just to make them go away in some cases. Of course, most doctors we hope are, are not gonna do that, but there are um, some who find that convenient, it seems. You know, there are cases which are difficult to tell. Maybe you don't know whether it's a viral or a bacterial pneumonia. So, you know, as a sort of, Easy thing to do, I guess, uh, doctors will end up giving uh, patients a, a, an antibiotic prescription, which maybe they're supposed to wait to fill, but maybe they don't wait to fill. Sometimes uh, that happens. In many countries in the world, and uh, when I say many, I really mean the majority of countries in the world, patients are able to just buy antibiotics quite easily without a prescription. So this is um, it's very common that you can just walk into a pharmacy and uh, purchase some standard antibiotics, or in some cases, you can just buy it in a grocery store uh, or off the street. And um, so you'll find that people will have a stash of antibiotics in their, in their medicine cabinet just to be used for whenever they don't feel well. That's very common. Even worse, um, a large fraction of the world's antibiotics are actually used in animals, in livestock. Um, historically, they've been used for different purposes, including um, encouraging growth or growth promotion. Somehow, farmers discovered that giving uh, cattle and pigs a low dose of antibiotics tended and in their feed every day tended to increase the rate at which the animals grew and so this of course uh, is problematic because the same bugs the same bacteria that infect pigs and cattle and other animals affect humans too um, the bugs are not different we have exactly the same uh, bacteria in us as there are in other animals. So, so the problem that we get with uh, antibiotics is when antibiotics are used, 
they tend to kill off the non-resistant, the susceptible bacteria, leaving the resistant ones to flourish. Those become more common and then because they're more common, they're more likely to be spread to us. So that leads over time to more and more resistant bacteria in people, which can't be treated because by construction, they're resistant. Sorry, I, uh, I didn't fully get to answering your question on stewardship. So one of the ways that we can deal with stewardship is uh, to reduce the use of, of antibiotics in animals, especially when the use is, for example, for growth promotion. When it's for treating a sick animal, that's appropriate. Um, and then there's a middle range called metaphylaxis, which is when, when antibiotics are used in the expectation of sickness. So for example, when animals are brought together in a feedlot and exposed to a lot of stress, they'll often be given doses of antibiotics because the veterinarians know that if they don't give them antibiotics, they're gonna get infections. More recently, um, there's also been um, quite a lot of use of antibiotics in crop agriculture. For example, streptomycin, um, is being used on oranges in Florida by the ton. They're spraying it out of airplanes onto, um, onto orange trees in order to reduce fungal growth. That's going to lead to streptomycin-resistant bacteria becoming more common, and uh, those drugs just won't be available for humans to use. Wow, I had no idea about that use of antimicrobials in Florida in that way. That's really interesting. So, I mean, that really emphasizes the, the broad group of people that you'd need to get involved in stewardship of antimicrobials then. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Uh, everybody has a role to play, but especially regulators. Um, so I was involved in uh, a, a World Health Organization um, guideline development group to basically discourage the use of new, newer antibiotics and antibiotics which are essential for human health um, in animals. So there are some alternatives and there's, there's certainly an opportunity to make sure that we try to segment what animals are getting um, and what humans are getting. Uh, the, so the next thing I wanted to ask about was what led to you wanting to approach this problem of antibiotic resistance from the lens of the tragedy of the commons? I mean, th this is a commons problem, exactly like the, the very classic problem where if you have a common resource that gets overused, it gets degraded and it becomes useless to everyone, the same thing is happening with antibiotics. They're a common resource, which are extremely important for humanity in general. And uh, they're being overused and degraded. And the risk is that over time, there'll be more and more previously treatable diseases, which become now untreatable. So it is a commons problem. And I, I think um, what's useful to think about is how have we dealt with other commons problems in the past in order to uh, address 
this this kind of this kind of problem. Right? This is not a an entirely novel problem. It, it's not as if we haven't faced this kind of issue before. So, what can we learn from um, what people have thought about uh, approaches to to solving these common problems in other circumstances? I mean, for me, the the first and most obvious strategy, because I'm an economist, <laughs> I can't help it is when I look at, uh, there, there are kind of two standard approaches to commons um, problems in economics. Uh, Ronald Coase, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in part on because of this work, suggested that one thing that you could do would be to just make sure that there was proper ownership. If you have ownership of the resource, um, then whoever the owner is, will be able to make sure that it's used appropriately and given proper value. Unfortunately, this doesn't work in antibiotics. Right? We have a short period um, following the, um, when, when there's a single patentee who owns um, the rights to sell a antibiotics or a specific antibiotic you know, during the, the patent period before generics enter, where the the firm can actually limit use um, and can make sure that there is uh, full full up, um, appropriation of the value that's that's available from the drug. But because it's a short period, it doesn't really work. Um, the typically resistance doesn't develop within the first ten years, which is kind of the length of exclusivity. So, from the perspective of the patentee of a new antibiotic, best thing to do is just to use it up as quickly as possible and sell it as widely as possible. And, you know, by the time 10 years have gone, uh, it could be that it's all used up and is no longer really effective anymore. So that doesn't work. A second strategy would be to have some kind of tax or user fee. And that could work for animal use, but it's not very appropriate for human use because you don't really wanna stop poor people from being able to use antibiotics by charging a high tax. So that means that we need to go to some other more complex solutions. And here, um, Eleanor Ostrom has done some interesting work looking at how communities without using, you know, just complete ownership at a COS or a Peguvian tax um, have, uh, have been able to deal with um, uh, these kinds of uh, problems. And what she uh, found, and again, this happened to be uh, Nobel Prize winning research, was that communities have quite effectively worked together when they've been able to help everyone to recognize that there was a problem. When um, communities have brought together um, so-called appropriators, people who are using up the resource, along with those who might depend on it in the future, um, so that everyone can recognize that there is a shared need to deal with it. And that, that leads to um, policies um, which help everyone to recognize that they need to use the resource in a way which is reasonable and is gonna to lead to its long-term preservation. 
Yeah, I thought you did a really nice job in the paper of pulling out some of the empirical work that Eleanor Ostrom produced to apply to this kind of unique situation. Um, as you pointed out in your paper, Ostrom's research was really focused on local communities and how they brought together actors to solve these um, governance dilemmas. And uh, of course, when we talk about antibiotic resistance, we're talking about a, a global community of people. And as you, you know, described as we're chatting, very, very different groups of people with different uses and different needs from the resource as well. And, you know, when listening to you talk about, um, when I was listening to you talk about ownership as a potential solution, I was thinking that, you know, in my mind, the the resource we're talking about isn't necessarily the individual antibiotics, but the, the pool of effective antibiotics as the resource. And really, no one can own that. That's something that we can all benefit from and contribute to, but no one really has ownership over that. And I thought your description of the, the potential to use international agreements uh, in your paper really got at how we need to collectively develop solutions together. I want to chat about that. There's a few other things I want to go back to, but maybe I'll move on right now just to talking about that. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of go over what are some of the, the challenges that might be solved through applying an approach of international agreements? International agreements are really the key to solving some of the most pressing problems in the world. And we can see, you know, extremes. We can see success. Uh, the, the Montreal Protocol on controlling... Um, basically ozone destroying uh, chemicals has been very successful. It was relatively simple in a way because there was a solution available replacement of these ozone destroying chemicals. At the other end of scale of difficulty is uh, climate change. I mean, I think everyone is aware of the difficulty that we're having of, of getting international cooperation when there is Again, this is a common pool problem, a uh, common resource problem with that's of enormous importance to everyone, where there's this risk that we're all collectively going to destroy the resource that everyone depends on to stay alive, that is to say the world. Uh, and it's remarkable how difficult it has been for countries to, to you know, to make reasonable agreements about that. So, you know, what do we learn from this? I guess the, uh, in the, the Montreal Protocol, what we um, learned was that when countries have very different situations, and in particular, you had low and higher income countries that were interested in, um, that, that had different interests um, in, in terms of uh, how they wanted to treat uh, ozone. Um, basically, you had, high-income countries near the poles that were really worried about the decline in ozone and poorer countries near the equator that were not quite as worried and had less resources. And so the solution to doing this was in the Montreal Protocol, rather than to try to penalize countries for doing bad things with ozone, to basically for the rich countries nearer the poles to pay the poorer countries near the equator to avoid the use of ozone depleting uh, chemicals in refrigerants and other situations. So I, th I think that was uh, a, a model that worked quite well. And what it suggests is 
penalties probably aren't going to work that well. And we need to subsidize countries to be able to do things that they may not have the resources to do otherwise, or they might find too costly uh, given limited resources. And in the case of antibiotics, I guess, you know, the, the lesson here is that we have many countries that, especially poor countries, which in the long run are facing actually worse resistance problems. Um, and the rich countries tend to be facing smaller resistance problems. And the, the reason is that locally, it's easier for them to engage in stewardship campaigns and getting their doctors to be careful about prescription and generally avoiding, you know, the, the release of antibiotics in production. And uh, there's a whole, whole set of reasons why basically wealthy countries, I think, are having a, a better time with resistance. Those countries actually need to be the ones to help the lower income countries um, to reduce the amount of antibiotics that are being used and to increase the carefulness with which they're being used. And that's going to require some kind of subsidy. And there's really, um, there's no way around it. If, if the solution is to say to those countries, you know, we say to Kenya, you, you have to really focus on dealing with antibiotics because we're, we have a slight resistance problem here. You know, it's not going to work because they have many other pressing problems right now. And that's um, something that I was uh, hoping to get at with some of these equity issues. And I think the, the equity issues around the use of antibiotics are something that's sort of easy to understand. But uh, in my experience with working with researchers across the globe, I, I did my PhD studying data sharing for bioconservation projects, and I found one of the big equity issues was actually in innovation. And researchers working in low and middle income countries also want increased opportunities, not only for you know, stewardship and that sort of thing, but also to improve their own you know, innovation pipeline. So I'm wondering if you've seen any opportunities for improving equity and using innovation as a way to deal with some of these challenges as well. Maybe it's not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really hard question. Um, I, I think in pharmaceuticals generally, it's pretty clear that all of the attention is being paid and basically all the resources are going to the diseases that have more of a global market and that global market, including high income uh, countries. So there's an enormous amount of research, for example, in cancer, but not much of a research effort in um, uh, really important diseases like tuberculosis and malaria. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, they're extremely well known and um, you know, and really lead to enormous loss of life. Um, I think tuberculosis kills about one and a half million people a year. Put that in the context of COVID, which is what now like 3 million globally or something, um, you know, but tuberculosis is every year and it gets no attention relative to COVID. Um, you know, there've been almost no new uh, drugs developed in the last 40 years. It's a little bit of research. I, I guess 
my expectation is that you know there is a larger set of problems relating to getting innovation that is really focused on the needs of poor people. We have seen a lot of progress in the last 50 years. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to understand the profundity of it. But 50 years ago, you know, in most low-income countries, almost everybody was educated to a much lower level than today is common. And in, you know, in countries like India, the transformation in terms of technical and technical knowledge, skills, training, and education, literacy, numeracy is stunning as people's life expectancy has increased and basically social services have been developed to be able to make people value education and have access to education. Um, things have changed remarkably. So we've seen, you know, countries which were previously, uh, you don't need to go back that far for China to have been a technological backwater. And uh, today, definitely China is not a technological backwater. The same thing is true uh, in India, especially in, in Southern India and, and in, well, in the large cities and even in the smaller cities, it's quite remarkable transformation. Is that going to lead to more opportunities for innovation that really affects uh, poorer people, probably, although even in India, a lot of the research goes to what are the diseases that are going to be really profitable for research, as opposed to research which is focused on local needs. Right. I mean, the, the motivations for profit are the same for pharmaceutical companies, no matter where they're located, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, there's a role for governments, obviously, to fund the research, which is um, of importance for them locally. That, that would be nice to see, although typically even then, um, the companies which are pushing governments for subsidies are often looking to serve global markets. And myself, as an early career researcher, I'm always really interested in how folks get to where they are in their own scholarship. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you, training as an economist, came to focus on studying competition and innovation in pharmaceutical markets. Oh, well, it's a long and winding story. I studied English as an undergraduate. I worked in uh, banking for a few years in, uh, in England and then in Korea. While in Korea, I learned that I was really interested in development as South Korea is a, a model really for how to go from very poor to quite wealthy in no time at all. So that led me to a degree in economics. While in economics, uh, I focused on uh, industrial organization and pharmaceutical markets just happened to be particularly interesting because um, they're really a mess. It's a very complicated and poorly functioning set of markets. And antibiotics are certainly a especially poor example of uh, pharmaceutical markets at work. I, I suppose that, um, yeah, maybe joining those two things together, the enormous success of Korea in going from extreme poverty to a kind of more comfortable existence really made me think a lot about development and the um, extreme dysfunction of pharmaceutical markets um, 
it's just interesting from an economic point of view. So I've joined those two in my research. Sounds like it was sort of a natural progression of interests as you went throughout your different career stages then. Or an unnatural progression. but <laughs> <laughs> I find most career paths are kind of winding, as, especially for curious people who are just interested in learning things. Yeah. No, I, I, I in some ways, uh, I regret the fact that as like others in academia, I've become more and more focused and specialized. And uh, that it seems to me is a bit of a loss, but you know, there's some uh, gains to be had from doing that as well. And one thing that, that was really interesting to me about your paper, as someone who studies commons governance and is really steeped in the literature around commons, I thought it was really interesting that you use the phrase, the tragedy of the commons, but you didn't actually reference Garrett Hardin. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how in your training as an economist, when you came across Ostrom versus Hardin, and if it was a deliberate choice to not include Hardin in your references, or if it's just that the phrase tragedy of the commons has its, its own life and doesn't need Garrett Hardin anymore. Um, so I, I'm, I hope I don't shock you in the answer, but um, I had not heard of Garrett Hardin before you asked me. I did uh, look him up. I mean, the tragedy of the commons is, is something that, you know, every economist is taught about at an early stage in economics. Um, I think that uh, Garrett Hardin's um, work was kind of with the focus on, I, I guess, uh, population is a little bit unfortunate and it's not really um, one that I would want to teach to students particularly. So I can understand why it is that I hadn't heard about it. So you're familiar with Ostrom's work then? Yeah. So I have to say that makes me actually feel so happy because I'll tell you how I came across the two. I was studying data sharing to support science and was reading Ostrom and people, I mean, Garrett Hardin's paper has been cited over 45,000 times. Uh, it, it's out there. There's a lot of people that refer back to it. And then I finally read the paper and I thought, oh gosh, this paper is terrible. Why, why is it getting all of this attention? And I had this hope that, you know, one day people will just use that, you know, that catchy, pithy phrase, tragedy of the commons, and just write Hardin out of it. So I, it actually warms my heart to know that you had no idea who Garrett Hardin was. So <laughs> I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. Yes, okay. Yeah. If, you're looking, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at economics for hope, that's really sad. <laughs> that, yes, well, hope for the state of uh, literature around commons governance. So when you were searching Hardin then, did you come across any of the controversies about his paper? I mean, I, I really just uh, read on Wikipedia. And then at that point, I said, well, I don't really want to read this. Basically, uh, someone who says that uh, we have really a problem with people being able to choose their own fertility is not my friend. It's amazing to me that after such a short engagement with that literature, you were able to pull out the key thesis that seems to uh, be neglected by so many people who think it's about how to govern sheep pastures. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's how the paper is always represented is Garrett Hardin wrote this paper about how we need privatization or government um, intervention to effectively govern shared resources like the sheep pasture that he studied. And that's not at all what his paper is about. So anyway, Thank you so much for being an actual scholar who read a topic and learned about it in its truthful form. Um, 
it's not that common. And I have to say that the people who I have been interviewing for this podcast don't really fall into that category. I because because that paper has been cited so many times, I have really been focusing on people who use the phrase tragedy of the commons in the titles of their papers, because um, that's only a pool of 360 some papers versus 45,000. So uh, it's, it's been a really interesting, um, diverse crowd of people who aren't ignorant about uh, the, the stuff that they're doing. But uh, there's no shortage of people who think that Garrett Hardin was just a nice economist writing about governing pastures. So um, that's anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't an economist at all, surely. No, yeah, he was. Um, I think he was a microbial ecologist, but he really made his name being a racist fearmonger about uh, overbreeding. It's how I would sum him up. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's really interesting. Well, I'm so glad that I asked you that. And just to get off Hardin and uh, back to the the most important topic, which is stewardship of antibiotics. Your paper was published almost six years ago, and I'm just wondering if there's been any progress in dealing with this global challenge. Like, where do things stand today? So uh, remarkably, there has been. Um, in fact, so the the paper was really. Um, written uh, in part because of a uh, conference that was being organized uh, in Sweden. And two of the other participants um, have gone on to to create um, or, or actually to lead organizations um, which are responding to this issue. There's been a, um, a US organization called CARBEX, which is led by uh, Kevin Outerson, which is basically trying to help resolve some of the issues around supporting uh, the development of new antimicrobials. Also, there's an organization formed by uh, DNDI, the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, which is being uh, led by um, Monica Balasegram, who's um, helping to um, basically advance um, the development of antimicrobials, particularly for the needs of people in lower income countries. So both great initiatives, which are uh, already making a difference. In addition, the, uh, the issue of um, antibiotic resistance has just commanded a lot of attention from governments. So we've seen at the UN level, uh, at the G20 and the G7, um, there's been a lot of effort to try to address these issues to make sure that there are new antibiotics coming forward and also um, realistic efforts to um, prevent or to, to limit the use of uh, antibiotics in, um, for example, agriculture. So yes, I'm, I'm heartened. We're, we've seen it in Canada uh, as well as in many other countries. There's just a, a, a big global effort to do something here. Well, that's a great point to almost wrap up on, but I do have two quick questions. Uh, and the first is, is there anything else that you want to share about your paper or the tragedy of the commons or antibiotic resistance in general? Um, perhaps it's just worth emphasizing to people that um, in general, you don't need to worry about antibiotic resistance coming from meat, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come from animals. So just, just so you know that uh, typically the, the food that you're getting has been, no longer has resistant bacteria in it. But that doesn't mean they're not in the environment because of the food that you're eating. 
So food is safe, but it's still important for us to be cognizant of our agricultural practices and how they might be leading to new resistant organisms. I think that's right. Yeah. And you gave some really uh, great examples of organizations that are doing um, work in this area, and I'll link to those in the show notes as well. But is there anything else that you're working on or that is being worked on that you think people might want to check out? Sure. Let me um, suggest that people might be interested in looking up the Global AMR Hub, um, sometimes also called the Global AMR R&D Hub. Um, which is uh, um, basically an international organization supported um, mainly by the government of Germany that's intended to help evidence-based decision-making and collaboration and coordination in antimicrobial resistance. Um, I think it's a, a great place to look for some information. It's got a really interesting dynamic dashboard so you can see what is happening in different countries um, around the world it's a super resource. That sounds great. I'm definitely going to check it out and I'll include a link to it on the show at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. So thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot and I'm. it was so, so nice to hear that there's been so many positive advancements and I'm really looking forward to checking out more of that work. So thanks again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts.